and welcome to Macro Bites, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. And today, in what is the third of our mini-series on climate around COP26, we're talking about the just transition, what it is, why it matters, and what role financial institutions have to play in ensuring it is delivered. And to discuss that very important topic with us, I am delighted to say I'm joined by Stephanie Kelly, of course, co-host of the podcast, and a very special guest in the form of Nick Robbins. Nick is Professor in Practice for Sustainable Finance at the Grantham Institute at the London School of Economics, where he leads on sustainable finance research theme. He's the author of the book, The Road to Net Zero Finance, and he's the co-founder of Financing the Just Transition Alliance. So there is no better person to speak to on the topic. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. And Nick, especially thank you for what I know is extremely busy time for you giving up your time to join us today. So welcome to the show and thank you. So I think probably the best place to start uh, is with you, Nick, and a very simple question, or at least I hope it's a simple question. We'll see um, just what actually it is that we're talking about when we when we say the just transition. Yeah, thank you, Luke. Uh, the just transition may be an unfamiliar phrase to, to many people, but I think the concept is fairly familiar, particularly for those in the investment community who've been working on issues of ESG for, for many years. Essentially, the just transition is about shaping the shift uh, to a net zero economy. Uh, it's in the Paris Agreement, and it's saying that as we drive to a net zero economy, as we decarbonize, as we invest in nature-based solutions, make our economies more resilient, we've got to think very, very carefully about what this means for people, um, what this means for particularly for, for workers. Uh, so it's a whole decent work agenda. Are the green jobs we're creating, are they good green jobs? Are we leading to uh, community um, re regeneration? What happens to those sectors and, and workers and regions which are highly dependent on, on fossil fuels? Uh, many of us talk about stranded assets. Are there going to be stranded workers, uh, stranded regions, uh, and so on? So I think it's, it's very much a a piece of connective tissue, the just transition. Um, it was part of the Paris Agreement, um, and and I think is a way, perhaps, uh, of, of looking at how we connect uh, the sustainable development goals, which many of our, us are working on, SDG 13 on climate, SG 8 on on decent work. So really connecting these things and not sort of taking a sort of tunnel vision purely on carbon. Sure, and so just to make that a little bit more concrete, when we talk of sort of the sectors, the regions, the workers that might be affected by this transition? I mean, who do we have in mind when we're talking about that? And I suspect there's a few obvious candidates in certain parts of the energy sector, but are there sort of some non-intuitive ones as well that are easily forgotten about that are worth also remembering? Yeah, I mean, again, I think for in, in a sort of broader human sense, I mean, obviously, the transition is a fantastic thing. I mean, there will be more jobs in a, a clean net zero economy, um, but there will be losses in the fossil fuel sectors. So I think if we look at coal, oil, gas, we know from the IAA that there is no room anymore for new capex in fossil fuels. So clearly, there are going to be those areas. And these are all very, very regionally based, whether that's the North Sea, uh, the in, in UK, so if you think about South Africa, think about the eastern parts of, of India. But I think perhaps if we do 
do broaden this to actually particularly think about agricultural sectors, land use sectors, uh, and, and, and forestry sectors, and so on. This is actually where there are more workers, perhaps a billion people rely on rural economies, um, where we do have issues around climate change in terms of as a source of emissions, obviously, agriculture sectors hugely impacted uh, by the physical shocks of climate change. And then we have the issue of biodiversity. So I think probably we'll see at COP, more focus on uh, on on this issue of, of land use and nature, and the question of uh, a just transition there as well. Where often, uh, as we know, in rural sectors, agricultural sectors, labour conditions, social conditions are actually fairly weak. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to bring Steph you into the conversation here. So maybe I'll start again with potentially a simple question. Let's see if it is. I mean, what role do you think policymakers have to play in the transition that Nick talked about there? So I think it's a really good question. It's kind of a challenging one for policymakers at every level because some of the challenges Nick's talked about are very much at the local level. And so clearly businesses have a role to play, which I'm sure Nick will go into, and, and finance in its way has, has a clear role to play. But policymakers also have a role to play in terms of ensuring that at the local level where there are you know, job mismatches or there are challenges associated with going from fossil fuel use to um to cleaner energies uh, from a labor perspective that they are in some way compensated right and that implies a bit more government intervention than i think many maybe maybe kind of currently factoring in i think if you go beyond the local level to the regional or the national level there's also the question of how this hits consumers because of course consumers particularly in this transition period who are reliant on you know in the uk is a good example gas boilers if there's a desire to phase out gas boilers how does the government compensate people so that they can do that particularly for those low-income households right who we know in particular if you're a middle class or, or, or wealthy household your ability to buy a new you know electric car and use those incentive schemes that are to buy that electric car well you can do that because you've got a bit of money but actually if you're someone who's who can't afford a first-time car to begin with, then the loss of fossil fuel support and the those green credits might not directly affect you. So I think there's a national regional element, which is how do you compensate low-income households who are likely to be the most hit? And then that really applies when you go the next level up, which is the international, right? Which is a lot of what we're looking for from COP26, which is around how do policymakers at the national level interact with other countries and in particular compensate those emerging markets who haven't been responsible for the majority of emissions that have come through so far, but are likely to be going forward because they are still developing. And you think of countries like India who are highly reliant on coal as, as a really good example of where these tensions lie. So I think there's also a role for policymakers there in terms of, again, offsetting and compensating for those whose responsibility it is not or has not been, and who are going to have to make changes that will be more painful for them than it necessarily will be for the average wealthy household in the UK, for example. And so I think I take from that that maybe there are two sets uh, of challenges and, and tell me if this is a, an unfair passing of what you said. One is about potentially sort of some short-term trade-offs, pain for some sectors of the economy and some households. And the other is about sort of overlapping or indeed perhaps not even there being proper locuses of power to be able to deal with these at, at the right level where the problems emerge. So I suppose my, my question is, um, to what extent have policy been, makers been able to deal with those challenges? I mean, how successful have they been in sort of confronting those issues so far? 
So I'm, I mean, I'll take a, a first go at this, but I'm very keen to hear what, what Nick thinks as well. I think it really depends on, on the country you're looking at and the places you're looking at. I think there are lessons to be learned from energy transition that have taken place in the UK and social challenges that came about. Now, there are whole political reasons around kind of the coal transition that took place in the UK, but there are you know clear messages as well there. I think if we take the US, though, as an example at the moment, to me, there's sort of this strange... Um, mismatch between the concerns that certain particularly in the US um kind of Joe Manchin in West Virginia kind of takes this very kind of uh cautious approach to the green transition because he is from a, a region that has coal production and, and, and is fossil fuel is a fossil fuel producer and is politically important if not actually that that economically important. But I think the there's a bit of an irony because Joe Manchin is also a moderate Democrat and we see this particularly with the Republican parties as well in the United States right-wing politicians in general are less comfortable with the idea that you have big government, right? We know that to be true, but in some ways, the solutions to the concerns that right-wing politicians have around energy transition and the fossil fuel transition that has to take place, the solution is greater government involvement through these kind of support mechanisms I mentioned. And I think that's sort of the tragedy of all of this is the very solutions that would help mitigate and, and facilitate a just transition are the very ones that just ideologically, politically, they are not comfortable with. So it becomes sort of a vicious cycle, I think. Well, I mean, I think we're probably in the sort of second phase of the just transition in a sort of policy, political economy sense. So so, so in a sense, the first the issue was raised. And then we have, the, in a sense, the shocks. We have the shock of uh, President Trump being elected, uh, claiming that he needs to pull out of out of, out of um, Paris because of impacts on coal workers. We have the Gilets jaunes protests. Actually, a consumer point, so, back, so really highlighting Stephanie's point about a carbon uh, tax which hadn't been properly designed. And now we're in the second phase, and actually policymakers have learned. So if you think about President Biden, what did he talk about climate change? He doesn't talk about Carbon. He talks about jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, very interesting commentary yesterday, actually, at the G7, G20, when he was talking about the new steel agreement between the US and the EU, very much highlighting the link between green and securing workers' jobs. And then we have the EU, EU, Green Deal, uh, von der Leyen, President von der Leyen, very much highlighting just transition and having very particular mechanisms to deal with particularly high carbon regions, let's say Poland. The issue for COP, which is this third phase, if we're thinking about channeling uh, both public and private investment in some of these high carbon regions in the EU, we've now got to do that on a global basis. So that's the third phase is coming. And that's that's the, that's the big challenge. So I think that's a, a pretty good summary of, of where things lie on the political challenge front. But I wonder, Nick, maybe if we can sort of pivot the conversation to talk a little bit about the role of financial institutions within the just transition. And obviously that's a key part of your work. So I guess, yeah, the question is sort of why should financials care about this? And given that they should, what, what is their role within the just transition as you see it? Well, I think the first, and when we did our first guide on uh, investors in just transition with the PRI back in 2018, um, we had a number of uh, investors uh, signing up and supporting that with about 10 trillion assets. I think the reasons are fairly straightforward. Um, first is a question of systemic risk, that actually, if we don't uh, ensure that some of these issues are anticipated and dealt with, um, then we could have these sort of these backlash, and we could therefore slow the progress. And therefore, all the, the climate risks we know about will crystallize in, in, in our portfolios. So that's, the, that's the first. The second is, and that's maybe a, that's a sort of uh, a, a sort of uh, very instrumental way of looking at it. The second is a more principled way that actually investors, again, have signed up to uh, principles around 
and uh, ESNG have signed up to issues around human rights, labor standards, and so on, good practices around gender, including, including that. Um, and, and I think, again, the Just Transition is actually saying, let's connect the two. Cli climate is an environmental issue. The transition is not. The transition is a process of socioeconomic technological transformation. And therefore, bringing these, these uh, social issues on board is really important. And the third is I think it's a smart thing to do. That actually companies that actually are connecting their net zero plans with their human capital plans, their social capital plans, I think are going to be better investments over time. They're anticipating these issues, they're, they're thinking about investing their people, they're building reputational capital in communities. So that's still unproven, but I think risk, uh, principle, and also sort of smart approach is probably a, a good way of starting. So one of the criticisms you often hear is there's a lot of quote unquote greenwashing that goes on that financial institutions sign up to these commitments. They say good sounding things about the just transition, but when it comes to substance, there actually isn't very much there. So sort of in substantive terms, what is it that financial institutions can do and what specifically is their role? And is there sort of a clear framework for assessing that and thinking about what they should be doing? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned earlier at the beginning that we've um, set up a, a sort of informal coalition called the Financing Just Transition Alliance in the UK, and Aberdeen is a member of that, and that's, that's really good. And we just published our Just Zero report just ahead of the uh, the COP. And I think it's fairly clear what um, uh, institute, financial institutions, investors, banks, and others can do. First is obviously signal and include uh, just transition in uh, climate strategy policies that's that's very that's very clear secondly is to translate that into engagement and stewardship activities and there are a number of really good examples of that actually generating real results the third is more on the capital allocation side again thinking are there particular assets which are uh, can be attuned to just transition i think a lot of interest in infrastructure assets real assets which are more place-based green bonds as well some interesting examples there the UK sovereign green bond had a sort of social co-benefits dimension. Um, then there is the policy piece, and actually investors are influential uh, policy actors talking to governments. Obviously, investors can't deliver skills policy, they can't deliver regional policy, but they can support governments to make sure those are in place. And then there is uh, in in the issues around, uh, as you say, greenwashing and so on. So I think investors reporting on incorporating issues around just transition in the way they report to their, their, their clients and also wider society. I think myself, that there's great potential for including uh, just transition factors in the TCFD, the Task Force of Climate Related Disclosures. When it was set up, um, good, simple framework, but there were no people in it. No, no people were involved. And it's just odd when you're thinking about how companies and indeed financial institutions are thinking about strategy for climate change. You've got to think about people, uh, your, your, your workforce, your, your, your consumers, your supply chains, your communities and so on. So I think that would be those sort of five points, sort of strategy, engagement, uh, capital allocation, policy, and then uh, disclosure. So what interests me in that answer is that it sort of, is, is it fair to say that there's potentially a, sort of a different role for different types of investors in different parts of the capital structure or in different assets, this idea of engagement that seems to speak to equity investors, green bond investment, maybe that's the kind of thing that uh, a sovereign bond investor might be interested in. Are there, are there sort of like, is there a divide and conquer aspect to this that different kinds of asset classes get involved in different ways? I think so, yes. I mean, essentially, I mean, just like climate is a 
whole portfolio issue. Every asset is including the transition. And again, it is part of this broader broader shift. So yes, I think listed equities and shareholder engagement. Interesting in some of the discussions we had uh, recently, obviously, debt index investors can engage. And obviously, that means you can often get to maybe smaller companies, unlisted companies as well. So I think, again, fixed income. And I think there's a lot of interest in in, in, in real assets as well, um, particularly, let's say, in renewable infrastructure, and really sort of demonstrating there that renewable infrastructure has been delivered with high workplace standards, and also sort of community uh, benefit uh, as well. So I think across the asset classes, uh, I haven't yet thought about the derivatives yet, but I'm sure there's a, there's a dimension there as well. And just to clarify this a little bit, I suppose, for some of our listeners, could you explain exactly how sort of green sovereign bonds work? And you mentioned there the UK's issuance of them. I think it's now a a leading issuer of green bonds. Exactly how are those meant to work? And and why is that different to any other sort of sovereign bond that a government might issue? Well, a green sovereign bond is a very simple instrument. I mean, there are two categories. The main one is is a, is a use, is essentially a use of proceeds sovereign bond, where a government goes to the market, raises money to spend on uh, green activities, um, is able to 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 verify and show that those uh, that spending has has happened. And that's a, a and again, I think for the just transition, because I think as Stephanie was saying earlier, there is a sort of pub, pub, public policy lead. That, that makes a lot of sense for sovereign bonds to be used for these uh, type of activities. So we uh, at the LSE, working with others at the Impact Investing Institute and the Green Finance Institute, we're encouraging the UK government to, to explicitly link um, the green sovereign bond and the spending to uh, social co-benefits in the in the language of UK politics to levelling up, um, and so that is what the government has done. So the first it's the first sovereign bond in the world. It's now ten billion uh, has been raised um, in in September, I think, um, and the government will report on the social co-benefits in terms of jobs, uh, enterprise, and access to to uh, key services through this green spending. And I think that's a useful way of overcoming this sort of often division between uh, the green and, and and the social. So that's one. Type of green sovereign bond. Another is you have sustainability linked bonds where the coupon is linked uh, to the, 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 the achievement of a sustainability um, outcome. Obviously, we use that for index linked bonds for, for inflation. We've suggested that, for example, Brazil, which obviously has a major problem deforestation, might want to link a deforestation linked uh, sovereign bond whereby the, the coupon is raised if the government fails to uh, hit its deforestation reduction targets, giving the government skin in the game um, to actually drive down the deforestation rates. So two, two sort of processes there. So I think green bonds are a pretty good example of this sort of intersection between public policy and finance in the way that public policy can shape incentives for the financial sector, but equally sort of tie its hands and, and have it so that the financial sector creates incentives for the public sector. So I'm just sort of Making that question more general, I mean, how do you see the intersection between public policy and and finance in that way? We've talked a little about on this show before about um, the role in which central banks have to play in sort of creating norms for financial markets. So sort of can you talk a little bit about that intersection between the two? Yeah, I mean, it it is absolutely essential so uh, and, and i think again we the, the, i think we're going to be we're seeing much more of a, a sort of phase shift in the discussion of sustainable finance so clearly we need large amounts of public policy 
uh, in, let's say, the real economy in terms of energy policy, industrial policy, agricultural policy, to actually correct markets um, because they're, they're failing to incorporate environmental issues. And that provides the pull for investors and businesses to invest in areas like uh, offshore and, and sustainable agriculture and all the rest of it, uh, green hydrogen and so on. But also we need action within the financial system itself because the financial system has a number of, of, of flaws. It's too short-term, misaligned incentives. And we need every single pound in the UK financial system, the global financial system, to be aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement, so net zero and also resilience and uh, sustainable development. So, so I think that question of alignment, and so central banks clearly have been taking taking a, a role um, on the on the risk side, stress test is cranking up. Um, one of the things we've recommended, and it's interesting to see, I think it's starting to be sort of picked up, certainly in language, is that um, we, ne- we will need essentially all regulated financial firms to, on a mandatory basis, submit net zero transition plans. Um, uh, and that would include just transition uh, aspects. Um, why? Because that is a good thing, uh, is a good signal to the prudential regulator that these financial regulated financial firms have got their act together in terms of, of, of climate. But also the Bank of England and other central banks need to understand that all these commitments that banks, investors, corporates are making add up. Do they all add up to a, uh, a, a, a resilient and sustainable financial system? So I think on both sides, policy in the real economy, energy, industry, transport, agriculture, and all that, yes, but also in the, the financial economy, both on the fiscal side, as we discussed on sovereigns, but also on the, uh, on the sort of regulatory side, both on the risk, but also to ensure that, that uh, the assets are pointing in the right direction on the alignment side. Okay, that's brilliant. So, Steph, maybe if I just bring you back in for for one final question, and hopefully it's a, a bit of a softball question given the uh, the conversation that we've had up to this point, but it's it's this. So, I mean, in what sense should we think of the movement to a a quick and efficient, a possible energy transition and a just transition as sort of being complements or substitutes, or there being any sort of trade off between them? Yeah, so I think I think that they're often spoken about in separate, almost separate buildings, right? One one conversation is taking place, which is around how do we transition efficiently and effectively. And honestly, that conversation often is so marred with politics, you don't even get on to this separate conversation, which is around how do you do this in a just way, which I think is short-sighted, because actually, as, as Nick made the really good point around, you know, for the Conservative government, the levelling up campaign is really important. If you can effectively meld climate policy into every decision you make as a government and vice versa for every climate policy decision you make you understand the welfare effects that that has and how you might potentially offset it to me that is an efficient and effective energy transition because it solves for some of the issues that are likely to create backlash right you don't create a carbon tax that people are going to massively you know come out on the streets and and oppose because you've thought about ways in which to offset the effects for those who are most likely to be damaged by it, who, who, who aren't likely being people who are creating the most emissions. So I think that's where these solutions have to go to. It, it, it is a mistake for people to talk about the transition in a separate room to the energy transition. It is, a, I think, a fundamental facilitator of an energy transition that ultimately is more sustainable and isn't subject to these political backlashes because you are kind of dealing with the potential political issues as you move through the energy transition. Well, I think that is an excellent note on which to end the conversation today. So thank you so much, Steph, and thank you so much, 
Nick for coming along. As I said, I know it's an extremely busy time for you, so we are very, very grateful to have you and I've had your insight today. Um, our final episode in this mini-series will be reviewing our thoughts on COP26, so please do tune in for that. But uh, in the meantime, please do rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. And thanks very much for listening. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation, or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein, and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication, and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only, or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.